Well, good morning. Uh, today we're starting a brand new series call, um, called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to take um, a look at the uh, book of Matthew. Uh, this was written by a man by the name of Matthew who was one of Jesus' disciples. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to technically do a sermon on a sermon. And so this should be really interesting. I'm going to skip over a lot of the introduction stuff that very often uh, goes with the start of a sermon. I'll just very quickly say that, that Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and he later wrote about his account of the life and the teachings of Jesus. Now, we also read about the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Luke, but it's a much shorter version of, uh, of this account. And so Matthew took a lot of time to write about the information, about the teachings of Jesus. And the other thing that's important for us to note as we begin is that Matthew wrote with the Jewish audience in mind. And so what you're going to see from Matthew is he often writes about, you know, the prophecies, and he's very careful to outline the prophecies that have been fulfilled and, and some of those other things that would have been very important to the Jewish culture. So Turn in your book, in your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 5, uh, start verse 1, and uh, let me set it up by reading you the first two verses. It says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, that's the setup, that's the setup that Matthew uses to, to begin the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to see now is three chapters of Jesus teaching um, the, this, uh, the, the disciples, and I think it's also important to note that this large crowd of people gathered before Jesus, but Jesus calls his disciples, or it's when his disciples came near him, he began to teach them. So technically, Jesus is speaking these things, he's saying these things to his disciples. There are eight Beatitudes that Jesus covers in Matthew chapter 5, and we're only, we're only going to look at four of them this morning. But Jesus covers these Beatitudes with his disciples, and he begins to teach them these different things. Now, these Beatitudes are not what you would normally um, associate with living a good life. You'll see Jesus start every Beatitude with the word blessed or happy, as some of your translations may say. Now, it's just important to note that the word blessed or the word happy are not very good words to describe the teaching that Jesus is saying or the word that Jesus is using here. The Greek word for blessed is makarios, which is a term of congratulation or recommendation. These qualities are to be envied, they're to be emulated. So it's much more than just a pat on the back from Jesus. It's much more than just, you know, this little sprinkling of blessing. He's, he's, this literally implies that these are qualities that we are to be that we are to have others envy in us. Blessed are those who, and it's like when you have these things, others are supposed to almost look at you and say, man, I want that in my life. Now, in this sermon, in this series, you're also going to times hear me say things like, or use a little phrase called the Pharisee in me. You're going to hear me use that quite often, in the, especially today and next Sunday, where I'm going to talk about the Pharisee in me may want to do this. Now, for those of you that didn't grow up in church culture you may, or church community, you may be wondering, what in the world is he talking about when he says that? Well, in church language, it's basically church language for uh, when I only care about myself. 
or when I'm acting like a hypocrite, or when I'm more concerned about my outward appearance. Sometimes when we have those things in our lives, we literally say, man, he's acting like a Pharisee, or that's the, you know, so that's what I mean. I hope that helps you as you um, try to follow along in, in this um, sermon series. These are the instructions on how we are to live the good life. And so let's dive in. We, Jesus, uh, Matthew has set it up for us, and he, he said, and he said. And so here we go. First thing that Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, he- in heaven, of heaven. People who are prosperous spiritually are also people who are humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we are told in James chapter 4, verse 6. Being humble doesn't mean we are poor-spirited or that we think of ourselves as less than we should. That is not an, an accurate understanding of, you know, being poor in spirit. This doesn't say, and this isn't teaching, that we should consider ourselves less than we are. However, we should have a strong sense of how poor and needy we truly are. We must recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before God, we should, which should lead us out of necessity to completely depend on God. I remember when we were on our trip, you know, I've gone to a number of different places over the years, but every now and then you end up in places where you're like, I cannot understand a word that this person is saying. And that, that happened to us on this trip when we were in Ukraine, where I just could not understand the Russian language at all. And you become so dependent on your translator, where, you know, you'll be in the grocery store and you'll be pointing and things like that. And finally, you're just like, I have no idea. I cannot understand what is this person trying to say. And, you know, so the translator will come over and you know how it is. Once the translator explains it to you, you're like, oh man, I should have got that. I should have got that. I think that's maybe a little bit of a picture of how we are to be dependent on God for everything. We must never treat ourselves as if though we, or we must never live our lives as if though we don't need God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those people who are humble. The Pharisee in me the Pharisee in us, so here's our first, the Pharisee in, in each one of us, will defend our own ability to be spiritually good. The Pharisee in each one of us is going to say, no, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I can go to church. I can read my Bible. I can do all these things. I'm a good person. I do these things. I do those things. I'm not all bad spiritually. The Pharisee in each one of us will defend our own ability to be spiritually good depending on our self-sufficiency rather than depending on God. So how do we develop an attitude of humility? I think the first thing we must do is we must recognize that we can do no good thing without spiritual assistance. We are not able to be good enough on our own. We need the Spirit of God to show us, to lead us, to guide us, to assist us in pleasing God. We are not strong enough, knowledgeable enough, spiritual enough to be Christ's disciples. We ourselves don't have what it takes. We must depend on God and we must depend on Christ in order to please God. 
It may also help us to place ourselves at times into situations where we are more dependent on God rather than being able to rely on our own efforts and our own comfort. And again, this is so important for us as believers to every now and then to go outside of our norm, outside of the things that we are familiar with, outside of the the things that we are used to. And this forces us to depend on God. And I think that's a very important thing for us to experience in life. Humility is a sign of spiritual maturity. Humility is a sign of spiritual maturity. So what's the flip side? What's the result of blessed are the poor in spirit? You would think that with that would maybe come, you know, you're degraded or or you're, you know, you're looked down on, but the exact opposite of true is true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the what's the reward? What's the, the flip side of that? The kingdom of heaven is theirs. The flip side of each beatitude is comfort. In reference to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is promising all the comforts that come with being in the presence of God. God is the source of all comfort. Let's go to the next one. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. The second beatitude. The word pentheo means to mourn. This is the word that is used here. And it's a pretty miserable one. It speaks of tears, inconsolable grief, guilt, and depression. But this mourning is not for the loss of a loved one, but rather for our poverty-stricken spiritual state. John Stott, my, one of my favorite theologians, he writes this, one might almost translate this second beatitude as happy are, the, happy are the unhappy in order to draw attention to the startling paradox or the obscurity that it contains. He continues by saying, it is plain from the text that those here promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect, It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. You might ask, how can being so miserable be the formula for the good life? Why would Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? If this means inconsolable grief, why would Jesus use this as a, why would we look at this as a formula for a good life? I think it's important for us to note that mourning is the way to comfort, to consolation, to forgiveness, to affirmation, for divine affirmation. It sounds upside down, but then the Christian life is a paradox. For example, we give to get, we die to live, we mourn to dance. The word pentheo is used in Scripture to describe deep mourning. One example is when the disciples, you know, right after Jesus is crucified and he dies, the disciples are mourning deeply for the loss, for the the death of Jesus. That is the kind of mourning that we are to have for our sinful state. Clearly in that uh, moment, The writer is using that word to describe their emotional sorrow, but Jesus is using it here to speak about the sorrow, the mourning that we are to have for the sin that is in our lives. 
If this is an example of how deeply we are to mourn, then one must ask ourselves, if we take sin this serious, do we mourn our sinful nature to such a degree? Do we mourn our sinful nature to the same degree that we would mourn the loss of a loved one? So how do we become people who are truly, truly sorry for our sin? I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to be honest. Dishonest repentance will never bring forth this kind of mourning. You can't pretend that you're sorry and then truly receive, you know, the, the, the comfort when it's not real. We must be honest. We must be completely honest with our repentance. The second thing is we're going to have to be brave. We may not like the idea of appearing broken. Perhaps we have been broken by others through abuse or neglect, or we have sinned ourselves and we try to pretend that it didn't happen. But we have to be brave. We have to fess up to what we've done or to what others have done to us in order to truly become true mourners. You see, the Pharisee in us will do all he can to stop this from happening. A Pharisee never wants to appear broken. He says the words, but with no true pentheol. And third, we need to be inclusive. Jesus wept for the sins of others, and we need to mourn for those who do not mourn for their sins. So what's the flip side of mourning? It says this, for they will be comforted. To mourn is to find comfort. I know in my own life I've seen where people who have experienced really difficult moments in their lives and sometimes as they talk to you and as they share this you know, pain in their life, you see certain people, they just, they just tell it to you as if though you know, they're so familiar with it that there's no tears, there's no sorrow. There, it's just, it's almost like a cold face. They'll, they'll explain these difficult things that have happened to them in their life. You see, when we are no longer capable of mourning, we are also going to struggle with receiving comfort. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are truly, truly mournful or who are truly mourning for their sin, for they will be comforted. Verse 5, the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Now the word meek can be seen as weak. Um, you know, it's, you know, I'm sure if I would go up to some of the men in this church and say, man, you look like such a meek person. I'm guessing that from, that wouldn't seem like much of a compliment. You know, if I was like, man, you have such a meek personality or character. Most of us would look at that and say, oh man, are you calling me a wimp? Are you, are you making fun of me? Are you saying I'm a weakling? You know, am I some like sort of mouse, you know, little church mouse that you think you can just take, you know, and control? We look at the word meek as something that is that means weak. But look at what the Greek word here actually means. The Greek word is, is uh, pros. has the sense of harnessed energy or controlled strength. We are not talking about being self-controlled. We are talking about being Christ-controlled. 
It doesn't mean cringing before God like a whipped puppy, but letting the Lord take the reins of our lives and have control over us. Jesus always showed this inner strength, even in the most complicated situations. For example, when Jesus stood before Pilate, this mighty ruler, this powerful man who could decide whether he lived or died, Jesus kept his composure. Jesus was completely in control. They weren't able to somehow entice him to say things or, or get him to react a certain way. Jesus never lost control of, of himself. He was always in control. That is what this word means. Let's look at two words that describe meekness. The first one we've already used is the word control. Christ control. This must be built into the very foundation of our lives. The idea of being harnessed gives us an idea of what this looks like. For example, when you harness, you know, let's say a wild horse, that horse is of no use to the rider until it is broken, until it is harnessed, until the rider is able to have control of the horse. Then suddenly that horse is of use to the rider. And I think that gives us a bit of a um, picture again of, of what we're looking at here. We need to allow Christ to control us in that way. So that what he wants to accomplish in our lives, what he wants, where he wants us to go, the things he wants us to do, he is in control. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are controlled by Christ. The Pharisee in us. Oh, this is a big one. The Pharisee in us is going to say, I have control. No one else but me decides what I do with my life. And I think this morning, if we were honest with ourselves, I think we would have to all admit that probably those moments in our lives when we got ourselves into the most trouble were those moments in our lives where we insisted on being in control. Were those moments in our lives where we decided, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter what others say or no matter what Scripture says. I'm going to live my life to please me. And that is what the Pharisee and every single one of us is going to want. Is that we will insist on being in control and that we will never give Christ control of our lives. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29 says, Jesus is speaking, he says this, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the thing that's sometimes going to keep us from truly wanting to give Christ control of our lives is, is we may think that if we do that, it's going to be this burdensome thing that we cannot carry or that we cannot have. But Jesus says, my burden is light. See, most of the time when I take control of my life, I end up becoming anxious, I become depressed, I become overwhelmed because the things that I do are often not the things, or the things that I want to do are often not the things that Christ wants me to do. So the best thing for me, the best thing for Ike Unger, is to give Christ complete control. 
To live a life sharing Christ's burden will require a meek spirit. The Pharisee in us loves to load others down with burdens, but we don't want, the Pharisee in us does not want to receive the the burden or the calling that Christ wants to lay on us. So how do we develop an attitude of meekness? I think we'll need to evaluate areas of our life in which we have not yet given Christ, Christ control of. And we need to meditate on Scripture. Something about spending time in God's Word helps us to develop a godly attitude. Another word that describes meekness is the word courtesy. Somewhere along the way, Christianity has lost the touch of courtesy. Think about it. You hear stories, and I remember in seminary actually hearing a story from a pastor who said that their church split because of the color of the rug in their sanctuary. And that's why we don't have rug in this gym. We have just avoided all that. But think about it for a moment. Maybe that's a different church's area of struggle, but what are the areas of, in this church where maybe we need to exercise more courtesy? to what kind of music we like or don't like. Think about it, the gossiping, rumors. These things should not be in the church. These things have no place in the church. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are controlled by Christ. Blessed are those who are courteous. And yet so often in the church there's gossip, there's rumors. These things have no place within the church. Christianity can become a place where we fight for ourselves rather than exercise courtesy. Now, it's easy to rip on Christians. It's easy to, you know, to to pick on on Christianity, but this is is true in, in many, many places. But within the Christian community, courtesy should be at the forefront of how we live our lives. Jesus always had good manners. Think about it. Oh, he got upset. He flipped tables. He would become completely frustrated with his disciples. But he was always good-mannered. He was always polite to everyone, to the weak, the sick, the women, the children, the rich, the poor. Now, the Pharisee in us wants to appear meek. And he may even say, oh, be merciful to me, a miserable sinner. But watch out if anyone agrees with that statement. The Pharisee will be terribly upset. He himself can say, oh, I'm a bad person. But if somebody would agree with him, well, he does not like that. Blessed are the meek. What's the, inherit- what's the flip side? An inheritance. You would think that if you are going to be meek, you're going to be taken advantage of, but instead you receive an inheritance. It says, for they will inherit the earth. And then lastly, the fourth one and the last one that we're going to look at today, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is clearly speaking here about spiritual hunger and thirst. Most of us at some point in our lives have experienced hunger. We may have missed a meal or two and man, 
we begin to have this deep, deep hunger. And it's like some of you are maybe going to experience that, you know, at some point this week where you're like, man, I am just starving. I need to eat. Then there's also people hunger where, where maybe you've been away from people, loved ones. And I know for us, man, we miss this church in the three weeks that we weren't, the three Sundays that we weren't here. It's like you, you long to be back in your church. You long to be with people you know. There's, a, there's this hunger to be around people. Now, I'm an extreme introvert, and I love to be on my own, but, but there are times, even for me, where it's like, especially with my family, if I've been away, it's like, you just, you just hunger to be with your family. And that's what we are to have for righteousness, and, and deep hunger for righteousness. The Bible talks much about spiritual hunger and thirst. John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38 says this, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus promised that he was the bread of heaven and that he could satisfy. He was a well of life that could spring up inside and drench our souls with eternal delights. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what's this righteousness that Jesus is speaking of? Again, I'll use John Stott. In his book, Christian um, Counterculture, he says that there are legal righteousness, that there's legal righteousness, moral righteousness, and social righteousness. Let's take a, a quick look at each one of those. The first one, legal righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the first one we're going to look at is legal righteousness, which is this, that we must have a great desire to satisfy God's demands and to be obedient to his word. Not in order to be saved, but as a result of being saved, that we cannot now go and just live to please ourselves, that we need to have a desire to hunger to please God. God's righteousness is what God demands of us. Now the Pharisee in you and the Pharisee in me is all about self-righteousness. He will try to convince us that we only need to do so and so much. You only need to go to church so and so often and, and he'll try to convince you that you only need to do certain things. If you do this or if you do that, if you do you know, smile here or smile there, then you've done enough. And he's not concerned about pleasing God. He's concerned about pleasing people. Listen to how Paul described the Jews. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayers to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans chapter 10, 1 to 4. We are to have a hunger to please God. The second one is moral righteousness. This means developing our Christian character and a conduct to match all that God demands and approves. 
Christ is to be our righteousness. We need to hunger and thirst to live like Christ. So when we read the Gospels, when we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see how Jesus lived, we need to actually have a hunger and a thirst to live the way he lived. To please him. The Holy Spirit is given to us in order to produce in us a Christ-like character. We cannot produce this on our own, but we must have a hunger and a thirst for this um, moral righteousness to be the same and to be like Christ. And then lastly, the social righteousness. This means that as I desire and hunger for righteousness, I also desire it for others. And this will move me to action on behalf of others, to live a lifetime of sacrificial service for, the, for a needy world. This righteousness means that my life is for the glory of God. Social righteousness, to see those around us also receive Jesus. And the Pharisee in us, he feeds on approval of people, not on God's approval. He is not satisfied with God's well done at the end of the day. He wants the recognition. He is all about self-righteousness and not at all about God's righteousness. You see, we need to, in each one of us, we need to have a hunger to see those who do not yet know Jesus to also have a relationship with him. I think this is a lot easier for us to do when it comes to family members because there's this emotional connection to them, a love for them. But the truth is each one of us here, we must, we must have a hunger for those who work with us or our neighbors that if they don't know Christ, that they too would come to know Jesus. So how do we develop a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. The first, I must recognize that the Pharisee in me will try to keep me satisfied where I'm at. The Pharisee in me, the Pharisee in you is going to say, you're good enough. You don't need to do more. You're fine. He's going to try to keep you satisfied where you're at. He will try to make you know, me a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. He's, he's going to be all concerned about just saying, you know what, you go to church, you, you read your, my goodness, you do devotions, you tithe. My, you know, you're one of the two point some percent of people who tithe. You're good. The Pharisee in you, the Pharisee in me is going to do all he can to keep us where we're at. So we must not listen to the Pharisee in us. We must discipline ourselves to listen to God's word regularly. So I challenge each one of us again to, to commit to reading God's word at least five minutes every single day. To spend at least five minutes a day reading the word of God. To be able to hear and to have a heart for the things that God wants us to have. Second, accountability Sometimes we need friends around us who will challenge us to have a hunger for righteousness, to have a thirst for righteousness. 
You need those friends in your life who, who at times are going to look at you and say, man, you know, are you still searching after the things of God? Are you still longing to have more of God in your life? Or have you become content with where you're at? Accountability. And finally, we'll need to check to see if we are spiritually alive. This is a big one. Think about it. It's natural for a living person to be hungry. You and I, we've never been to a funeral, ever, where the person who's passed away asked to be fed. See, when someone's gone, when someone's dead, they no longer have a hunger. So I think it's very important for us to, con- to at least consider and to wrestle with the question, if I don't have any spiritual hunger, what's the condition of my life? What's the condition of my spiritual life? Am I alive in Christ? So I would challenge all of us to consider that. Are we filled? Do we have a hunger for more of Christ in our lives? John chapter 10 verse 10 says, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So often when Jesus would, you know, when someone would come back to life, one of the first things that Jesus would do is he'd say, give them something to eat. This was like a way of proving, look, they're really alive. They have a hunger. They, they need to eat. And you and I, we need to check on our own lives. Like If we do not have a hunger, if we do not have a spiritual hunger for the word of God, why is that? Look at the flip side. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the flip side of that is for they will be filled. God will come and he will fill that hunger. The beauty with the gospel of Jesus is that if you have a hunger for it, you will be filled. Too many Christians are being too busy being filled with other things and they don't take time to truly feed on the word of God, to truly have their spirit filled. And so I would encourage all of us this morning to, to pray for, to hunger for righteousness. So we're going to conclude here for today. We're literally, we're not going to tie a pretty bow around it. We're not going to do anything fancy. We're just going to, if you're watching TV right now, you would see to be continued. That's all we're going to do. We're literally just going to pause it right here. I need you to all come back next Sunday as we pick up part two of this series. Let me pray and then you are dismissed. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the way you speak to us. And I pray that you would take this sermon to those who are who are here, to those who will listen to it later. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us through these words, through your word, to fully give our lives to you, to fully surrender our hearts to you, and to live the way that you have called us to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.